We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Jia Ting Ye, the founder of Cadigalan Media. Uh, it's good to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the KMT finalising its candidate for Taipei City's mayoral election. A long-awaited decision on the fate of Guangzhou Min's status as National Taiwan University president-elect. Workers taking to the streets of Taipei for Labour Day and some problems with plans for new ID cards. And we'll also be chatting a bit about a new Taiwan-based airline. But we'll begin with Taiwan losing another diplomatic ally this week when the Dominican Republic severed ties with the island in favour of Beijing. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is accusing China of using dollar diplomacy to pressure the ally to sever ties with the island and that accusation came amid reports that Beijing promised the Dominican Republic more than 3 billion US dollars in loans to switch diplomatic allegiance. And speaking after the government of the Dominican Republic announced it was establishing diplomatic ties with China, who described Beijing's behaviour as barbarous. Now, of course, the Dominican Republic's decision to sever ties with Taiwan is being widely seen as part of China's mounting efforts to put pressure on the Tsai administration here in Taiwan to adhere to the Beijing One China principle and also adhere to the 1992 consensus, both of which the Tsai administration, well, flatly refuses to do because it has a different opinion about the matters. Now, the Dominican Republic and Taiwan had been diplomatic allies for several 77 years, and the Caribbean country's decision to cut ties with Taiwan now leaves the island with 19 diplomatic allies. Now, the presidential office is also calling on Beijing to immediately stop all behaviour that it says is negatively affecting peaceful cross-strait ties, and the US State Department also came out and said much the same, and also said that there should be more moves to restart cross-strait talks following the announcement of the Dominican Republic's decision to sever ties with Taiwan, and US officials say that any changes to the status quo in the Taiwan Strait are not conducive to regional stability. And Washington is now urging Beijing to resume constructive dialogue with Taipei in order to avoid further destabilisation. So, Brian, where do we begin here? But we can only say another one. It's become a yearly phenomenon. <laughs> I think it definitely has been. I mean, we were talking about Swaziland last time. Um you know whether whether that would follow suit eventually, or just you know any time any remaining allies are raised, you this question just comes up. Um, you know, will this ally break, or will it, it, you know Taiwan be able to maintain ties? And this can only happen 19 more times. Um, so this time, what's interesting is that there's all been this uh, pushback, calls for a change in diplomatic strategy. I think that is something that is new. Um, I mean, just I think as Taiwan loses, or as uh, the ROC rather loses its remaining allies, I mean, the, it's a question, you know, what were we, why, why was so much time and energy spent on maintaining these relations? And Taiwan can never outgun China when it comes to spending uh, infrastructure development projects or things of that nature. Um, yeah, no, I definitely agree with Brian's um, analysis there. Um, I mean, I think I, I would I would like to add, though, um, you know, when, when the ROC loses these allies, um, what happens is these these governments they're basically switching the recognition of the legitimate government of China from the government in Taipei to the government in Beijing, right? That's that's technically and legally what is actually going on. Um, when they do do that, um, Beijing does <clears throat> uh, make all of these people, all, all these governments, um, 
not only recognize Beijing, but also um, very um, clearly state that they recognize Taiwan as part of China, right? And so um, in, in that sense, that, you know, that, that is definitely not a good um, outcome for ROC or for Taiwan for that matter. Um, the other thing is, of course, you know, these um, allies, uh, these former allies of the ROC does um, from time to time um, speak up uh, in, in the UN, for example, in the General Assembly, on behalf of Taiwan joining or participating in international organizations. You know, of course, these um, these actions, you know, haven't really produced um, much meaningful result yet. Um, you know, it is obviously better to have them than not. Um, so, you know, I think in a sense, if, you know, we were thinking, you know, Taiwan is not a big nation, right? Neither is the Dominican Republic. Um, you know, they are, you know, they are also facing very, you know, serious choices, whether they have to, you know, recognize the government in Beijing as the government of China and, um, you know, make friends with the second biggest, large, you know, the second largest economy in the world. You know, I, I, I think it is, you know, on the, from their perspective, it is not, um, you know, it, it is a tough choice to stick with Taiwan. So, Brian, I mean, you talked about a new government strategy here to keep its allies, but, I mean, they've come out with a word, we're going to have a more pragmatic strategy. But, I mean, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to say. Um, a lot of times there's, there's discussion of, for example, focusing on Taiwan's informal ties, that although Taiwan doesn't have official relations with the majority of the world's countries, Taiwan has informal ties that are not officially acknowledged but actually do exist. Um, that's one possibility. The other one is, you know, uh, which is usually pushed for by Taiwanese independence advocates trying to kind of clean the slate with the ROC, you know, to reform, uh, form a new government and try to renegotiate all diplomatic relations. And that might not happen anytime soon, but calls are on the rise as, as the ROC loses remaining allies. And Jieting, what do you think Taipei could do to keep the allies it has? I don't really see um, a way out if the focus is on, you know, formal diplomatic you know, recognition and relations, right? So, um, you know, I think, of course, you know, there's one thing that people are saying, which is if the government in Taiwan, the ROC government sticks to its, um, you know, sort of current legal fiction that it's still, you know, is seeking to be recognized as the government of all of China, um, of course, you know, legally, you cannot both recognize Taiwan, Taipei and Beijing at the same time. Um, you know, if the ROC... Um, is no longer, and you have a new government that just represents Taiwan, um, maybe that would, you know, sort of clear the way for that, uh, that sort of legal knot. But, you know, I think in reality, whether it's Republic of Taiwan or Republic of China or whichever, um, you know, I don't think Beijing would um, allow for sort of this dual recognition. Yet, I think the, the ultimate goal is for the countries of the world, right, the states of the world, to recognize both the PRC and, um, you know, the government that's legally representing the people of Taiwan. Um, so I think um, if we're talking about dual, if we're, talk, if we're talking about actual formal recognition, I don't, I'm afraid there's not much Taiwan can do. Um, although, you know, I think it is, you know, even with the United States, with Japan, with major allies, um, you know, Taiwan maintains a robust um, you know, relationship, right? So, you know, in the sort of in the absence of um, having that diplomatic recognition, um, you know, that's I think that's the best we can do at the moment. But you know, I do think I, I do think Taiwan should make its 
strategy of okay, we are we, we're basically seeking to be recognized as Taiwan, um, and you know of course we welcome any nation to recognize both Taipei and Beijing, um, and you know that is not what you know Taiwan does not want to replace Beijing or fight with Beijing for representation of all of China. You know I think if that message is loud and clear, I think that would um, you know that would change the game a little bit. I think. Right, well, there has been concern, of course, here in Taipei with KMT lawmaker Lin Yufeng this week warning that Haiti and Honduras are likely to be the next countries to sever diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of China. And former Foreign Minister Francisco O oh said that he believes the government should be monitoring the status of Burkina Faso as Beijing is gearing up for a massive China-African cooperation summit in September and Burkina Faso could actually sever ties. Of course, Brian Tsai Ing-wen mm. flew to Swaziland a couple That's of weeks right. ago on a state visit, but she didn't actually go to Burkina Faso at the That's time. That's right. It's always debated whenever uh, she has a stopover in what country, what that means in terms of that country's relation to Taiwan. Um, I think, though, there's often very little warning with this kind of diplomatic breaking. Um, just even, I think, uh, one week ago, Tsai was meeting with officials from the Dominican Republic. And so, you know, for there suddenly to be a turnaround like this, this catches a lot of people off guard. Uh, it's very hard to predict. Um, although I think it gets thrown around a lot by lawmakers, sometimes with political ammunition, um, with accusation that the Thai administration is not doing enough to safeguard Taiwan's diplomatic relations or has taken a lax approach when it be much more proactive. Right. Of course, in fact, Haiti actually turned around after the KMT lawmaker said this and said that its ties with Taiwan are safe for the time being. But of course, we'll have to see and seeing as we have one of these a year, maybe two even. Maybe we'll have two this year. We don't That's know. Right. We'll have to see. Can we have it 19 more times? 19 more years. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see Beijing dragging it out that long, though. Anyway, moving on now. And former lawmaker Ding Shou Zhong won the KMT primary to become the party's candidate in the Taipei mayoral election this week. Now, Ding won all three of the KMT's primary public opinion polls and apparently had an average score of 47.63% in approval ratings. He beat out former lawmaker Sun Da Qian, former Mainland Affairs Council Deputy Chief Zhang Xian Yao and Taipei City Councillor Zhong Xiao. Now, the primary consisted of public opinion polls. And, of course, well, these three different companies carried out these polling issues and they had two televised debates. Now, Ding is expected to be formally named as the party's candidate for Taipei during a KMT Central Standing Committee meeting next Wednesday. So, Brian, good choice. Of course, Mr. Ding, he's tried several times before to be the Taipei's candidate, the KMT's Mm. candidate for the Taipei mayor. Four times in the past, I believe. It's long been a political ambition of him to become mayor of Taipei and it's not too surprising then that he wants to run again. Um, The KMT decide to go with him means that they're relying on someone that's older and more established rather than uh, a candidate that could catch people off guard. Um, it's not surprising that he won, I feel like, because his, his challengers were somewhat strange. One was accused of treason. Uh, <laughs> and his premiere event was with uh, his announcement that he was running for mayor was alongside people dressed in Avengers cosplay. Um, so they were, I think they were not really serious candidates. But at the same time, it does it, is, it, it illustrates that the KMT is relying on old strategies to try to win Taipei over this time. And there was no controversy about the polls. Of course, there's been controversy mm. about a couple of these polls primaries by the KMT, but there was no controversy over the Taipei one. That's right. I feel like that's primarily because none of the other challengers were particularly, they had any real threat to a Ting. 
Right. And of course, the DPP, Jetting, has yet to say whether it's going to back incumbent Mayor Kerwin Jur or run its own candidate in the city. I mean, if you were in charge of the DPP, what would you be thinking at this juncture in time? Yeah, I think the DPP is really stuck, um, you know, between a rock and a hard place. You know, I, I, I think there's this, um, you know, still kind of this untested hypothesis, right? Whether, you know, Taipei is winnable by, you know, somebody other than um, the KMT, right? And I think in 2000, you know, I think it was 2014, you know, we sort of saw that, you know, okay, if the DPP, um, you know, steps, steps aside and then let um, basically, you know, back a, you know, so, sort of not nominated its own person, but back somebody who um, has some sort of claim to, you know, being independent, um, they did have a shot, right? But then, you know, I think looking back, you know, it was also because the KMT nominated somebody that was you know, widely unpopular. Um, you know, so I think, I think in, in I, I, I do want to say, I think in this case, um, you know, whether you basically have to say, okay, is the, the goal of not letting the KMT win the Taipei mayorship more important, or is it more important for the DPP to win? And I think... Um, you know, with somebody like Ding Sozong, I think, you know, the DPP would have to make a choice pretty soon one way or another. And a recent poll by the DPP showed that 70% of its supporters actually want the party to nominate its own candidate for Taipei's top job. And that same survey also found that Kerwin Zhe has a 35% support rating among Taipei residents, while at the KMT's recently nominated Ding Shoujong has a 30% support rating. Now, Brian, of course, the DPP, Lu Sholien, former vice president, has said she wants to run. Pursue Ye Yao, lawmaker, said he wants to run. And the DPP didn't ask about Lu Sholien in this poll, but they said Pursue Ye Yao has a 25% support rating. So he's still below the KMT and Kerwin Jur. What would I mean, you're in the charge of the DPP for one minute. What would you do? It's hard to say. I, I think that's correct. The DPP is between a rock and a hard place. Um, what is interesting about Pasu Yao is that he's also been someone that's run for mayor many times and it's also been a long-standing ambition. Um, so he's maybe the, the DPP counterpart to Ding Shouzhong in some way. On the other hand, Annette Liu is, is much more traditional and her kind of throwing her hat into the ring is, is a little odd. Um, that might actually not work out well for the DPP because it does. she does have supporters and so that kind of splits the views within the DPP. And then, you know, you have Koen Um Facing Ding Shouzhong, with the KMT seems to be much more coherent though behind him and with the DPP and uh, with the DPP in disarray that that does lead to challenges that it must overcome. I mean the DPP in New Taipei City with Susan Chang uh, illustrates that's also relying on kind of old hands on stability um, what it can count on and in the face of the KMT for Taipei that's it's also similar I think. And there should be a decision by the end of the month because apparently DPP officials are set to hold talks with incumbent Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jia next Tuesday. Would you like to be a fly on the wall there? <laughs> That'd be quite interesting. Uh, I wonder what they would talk about behind closed doors. I mean, how do you see Jetting? How do you see these talks working out? Do you see the Kerwin Jia wooing over the DPP once again? Yeah, I mean, if I were Kerwin Jia, I would definitely want them, you know, want to have the backing. I don't want to be. Um, you know, I don't want to have another challenger come on, you know, come at me from the opposite side, right? Um, and so, yeah, I definitely would want the DPP support. Um, I think he would have to kind of answer some of these criticisms about his China stance, um, you know, and of course, you know, some of the other you know, sort of um, city administration type um, criticisms, you know, but I think yeah, I, I do. I do um, hear that there's a lot. There are a lot of DPP supporters who are unhappy with 
occurs you know, primarily with this China stand. So, you know, I think that's something to watch for. Mm. I think uh, Ke is becoming increasingly controversial because of that. Uh, for the DPP to support him, then that raises the accusation that DPP has really backed away from many of its traditional stances, including on Taiwanese independence. And core supporters of the DPP or longtime supporters of the DPP will take that as betrayal. Um, there, there's an increasing amount of hatred towards Kominger in the Pan Green camp, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. I think Ke uh, also can't deal with it. But I think also Ke maybe could stand to gain from going it as an independent and saying that I'm free from both parties and I stand above them and I'm beyond this partisan politics. That does appeal to many Taipei voters, I think. Because, mm, of course, it's Taipei, not Kaohsiung. That's right. Not going to work <laughs> in Kaohsiung, really. Anyway, now we'll jump into a story that we've been talking about for several weeks now, and it reached a crescendo this week, and that's the long-running dispute over Guan Zhongmin's election as president of the National Taiwan University. Well, his future has now been signed and, well, sealed, some might say, but some might argue otherwise after the Ministry of Education ruled that his election was based on flawed selection processes. Guan was, of course, declared the winner of the university's ballot in January. But he hasn't been allowed to take foot or set foot in his office, rather, because, of course, the Education Ministry has questioned it and said, well, there might have been a few conflicts of interest there. Now, this week, Education Minister Umar Kun said that Guan's being voted in was the result of a selection rather than an election and the university's selection committee was supposed to pick the best candidate and carry out detailed checks on that person's career. Now, the education minister went on to say that there were many flaws in the selection process and the selection committee also violated its own rules regarding the critical issue of academic integrity. Now, of course, the problem is Guan accepted two different positions at Taiwan Mobile in addition to his role as an independent director before receiving a approval from the National Taiwan University to hold any of those posts. Now... Uh, the government and the opposition are completely split across party lines on this. And if you can believe a poll that was published in today's United Daily News, then 44% of the general public are backing the university's decision to elect Guan. And 56% of those polled by the UDN say that the government did interfere with the university's autonomy. So, Brian, do you think this was interfering in autonomy or simply saying, hang on a minute, maybe you broke the rules yourself? It's hard to say. I think it's become mired in uh, unification, independence, conflict to some extent, um, uh, because Quan is known for his position under Ma Ying-jeou as a uh, finance minister, and under which he was a major supporter of the CSSTA trade bill. Um, so in, in, in the accusations by KMT defenders of him are that this is a form of political persecution in line with transitional justice efforts or going after KMT's party assets and that kind of thing. Um, on the other hand, uh, it is it is a question that how how did this occur with NTU particularly? There's a lot of prestige at stake uh, with the last president uh, Yang Panzhu having to uh, come on coming under fire for a plagiarism scandal, and this also affected uh, you know Quan this time. This was the initial scandal that broke out, then the Taiwan Mobile scandal, and then the issue of possibly whether he had taught in China. Um, which it is interesting that the Ministry of Education decided to focus on the Taiwan Mobile conflict of interest as its its entry point into removing him or blocking his appointment, um, perhaps not wanting to touch this more sensitive uh, cross-straits issue. Um, yeah, I think the one of the biggest questions that comes down on this is, you know, are we trying to set a precedent where the Ministry of Education um, and by extension the ruling party has the final say in what um, national universities do, right? And I think um, a credible argument could be made that then, you know, yes, because these national universities are um, 
are funded and are you know basically they are con- they they should be they should be over uh, oversaw right by overseen by um, the the government and you know which which you know theoretically does represent the people you know the, the nation at large um, you know I think this is a question of you know do you hold on to a you know the, does the does the university claim autonomy but then hold on to a system that is um, you know flawed and perhaps even corrupt right or um, you know we as a society or as a nation basically say okay well then the you know the the politicians in charge then get to say um, you know what has the last say as to who should um, you know who should be the president of national universities and so I think you know if we look at it at that level um, you know, I think the the answer is pretty clear, right? I think there should be a full audit of the university's practices, right? And they should be much more transparent about how and why, you know, the certain candidates were chosen, you know. And I think that's uh, what, you know, I think the Ministry of Education should be pushing for, um, you know, for the national, for NTU to come out and to, you know, basically explain what is going on. Right, of course, university groups affiliated with the NTU and the KMT are calling for the government to simply reverse the ruling from the Ministry of Education. And while Guan himself is threatening to sue the government over its decision to void his (laughs) university presidency. Obviously, the KMT opposition to this... I mean, do you think the KMT is backing Guan simply because it's an opposition party? I think that is true, yes. Um, I think that there are valid calls for university autonomy to be defended. Um, For example, the NTU Student Association came out against the ruling by the Ministry of Education. Um, but at the same time, it's become rapidly politicized by the KMT and uh, these kind of background issues regarding, again, Pan Blue and Pan Green. For example, there's calls on campus for a new May 4th movement, which took place in the early 20th century in China. And in context of Taiwan today, oftentimes when you talk about the need for a new May 4th movement, that means having some kind of Pan Blue youth movement um, or some kind of Chinese nationalism. And so that these kind of issues have risen up very quickly, and that's kind of drowned out, actually, just what the actual consideration of how transparent this process is or how to defend principles of university autonomy that go back to the democratic movement as a way to defend academic and political freedoms. What about Guan threatening to sue the government? I mean, do you think he's going to get away <laughs> with suing the government or do you think this is just a threat? I think that the controversy will drag out. I think it is in Guan's interest as a politician, more or less, to prolong this. And so filing a lawsuit is one way. And there are many high-profile lawsuits filed by politicians simply to raise attention to an issue or to keep in the news or that kind of thing. I mean, there are even calls for Guan to run as, as mayor of Taipei City, leveraging all this popularity um, from, from the scandal. So it's a way to keep in the news. <laughs> yeah, possibly, but I think the, the, mm-hmm. the Taipei general public are probably sick of this in the news, to be honest with you. I mean, it's not a very sexy story, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these brief commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and some 10,000 workers took to the streets of Taipei for this year's Labor Day rally, and they demanded a 10% wage increase for all sectors and industries, and also for the government to raise the monthly minimum wage to 28,000 NT. Now, participants at the rally also called for a referendum on the Labor Standards Act to be held in tandem with November's local government elections. Now, the unions and the workers and the participants in the rally say they are seeking 
looking to have the newly amended provisions on flexible overtime work and shifts removed from the Labour Act. You can't do anything nowadays without actually calling for a referendum. Now, workers' groups now have until September the 16th to submit a petition with the required number of signatures to the Central Election Commission if such a referendum is going to take place on local election day. So, Workers' Day here, Jia Ting. No, and I think I think that's that's great. Um, you know, I think uh, May May first as you know International Labor Day. You know, I think Taiwan has always had a strong showing um, in you know, people coming out to support labor rights and labor conditions. Um, you know, I think in Taiwan, as um, you know, as we all know, you know, does not really have a strong tradition of um, you know progressive rights, labor rights, um, as you know, say like Western countries do, right? So I think. They're, um, you know, I think the people in Taiwan are trying to catch up and learn a lot of those traditions and a lot of those, um, you know, tools and um, techniques that have been developed, you know, in places like Western Europe. Um, you know, and I think we're trying to just learn that as fast as we can. So there is a legitimate um, force that is, um, you know, speaks for labor and you know, fights for labor. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's great to see people show up. Um, yeah, labor militancy has definitely been on the rise in the past year with protests against the Labor Standards Act. Those were incredibly heated, incredibly tense protests. Uh, and I think the Tsai administration maybe did miscalculate in terms of waffling on the issue, offending both labor and owners of big business, and then uh, then deciding to pass the Labor Standards Act after, anyway. And so these, this has been angering of labor, and this has led to labor building up as a force in Taiwan when in, in the past it was perhaps... At least under the martial law period, it was under the KMT's um, restrictions, and so now it's a question: what to go, what what follows next for labor? And labor has adopted the tactic of pursuing a referendum, which almost every civil society group of any political stripe is pursuing right now for a lot of issues. It, it remains to be seen how successful that will be, or whether labor can manage to uh, really build outrage or leverage on outrage in elections in some form. I mean, that's kind of the challenge now, just with elections coming. How do you present a threat to the DPP to make it reverse course, whether that be through referendum or uh, threatening not to p- support DPP candidates or uh, third parties leveraging criticisms within the legislature and taking action to block uh, future legislation from any passing, that kind of thing. But, I mean, this referendum, they want the Flexible Overtime Work and Shifts Act removed from the Labour Act, hmm. which, of course, caused a lot of controversy at the time because, of course, Labour groups said that this part of the new Labour Standards Act was basically set up by the business owners and the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right, because originally the the first set... The time administration reformed the Labour Standards Act twice, and the first time around... Uh, that that some business groups did actually meet with the Tsai administration, they still weren't happy with it, uh, which was what led to the second revision of it. And that, that of course, provokes labor because that is seen as a government directly um, bowing down before corporate interests. Um, I think what is what's on the Tsai administration's mind is that it fears big business going to China because its labor is cheaper there. And so that's part of the reason why it wants to keep... Uh, low salaries in Taiwan or these kind of uh, undo these labor reforms in the past 30 years. At the same time, though, that does offend the people that are workers and workers do have the option to, to go to China themselves if they make more. Um, so it's, it's kind of a double bind. It's, it'll be the amendments to the amendments to the amendments <laughs> to the amendments. We're just going to get fed up with amendments here. Anyway, President Tsai Ing-wen responded to the Labor Day rally, saying that her government will seek policies to raise salaries and improve the workplace environment. So, Jieting, I mean, let's raise salaries. Great thing for a politician to say, but, I mean, do you think that President Tsai Ing-wen and her government can actually do this? 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the government cannot, uh, you know, we're not in martial law anymore. The government does not go in and basically tell people how much to pay their workers, right? And so, you know, I think it's for the Thai administration that has, that has always had, you know, the focus and the problems always been the same, which is how do we, how do we increase and, you know, economic activity? How do we, um, you know, elevate Taiwan and upgrade Taiwan's industrial, you know, sectors so that, you know, everybody is making more money, right? And that's sort of the utopian ideal. Um, you know, I think in, in this case, you know, if you're talking about, um, you know, sort of labor, um, labor standards, you know, I think those, I think ultimately those things can be negotiated because they are, you know, you're moving, you're moving a, you're moving a mark on a spectrum, right? You're trying to calibrate, you know, what is, you know, what is a good wage, um, <clears throat> with good minimum wage, and what is a good, you know, working hours, and so, so on and so forth. I mean, the same, um, we see the same kind of protest that's going on in um, Paris, for example, right? Um, people, the, <clears throat> the, the new president in, well, the president in, in France are, you know, basically trying to relax labor standards there as well. And then you see protests and strikes in, in Paris there as well. So, you know, I think for, for the government, yeah, I think it's easy for anybody to come out and say, you know, I, yeah, it would be great if, you know, everybody made more money, you know, but the, the question is, yeah, but how do we do it? Right. And, you know, for Taiwan, you know, that's always, that's sort of been the million dollar question how do they do that and of course brian i mean uh, to play the devil's advocate here of course the kmt would argue that better cross-strait ties would lead to higher salaries and more jobs a viable argument or maybe questionable um it's hard to say the time administration certainly wants to turn time's attention towards say southeast asian countries or even recently was proposed with africa to build stronger ties with these these countries as a way to to so that taiwan is not so dependent on china but again uh, in terms of salaries and uh, lower cultural barriers for workers moving elsewhere, China's always going to be the big option, and that's a reality that Taiwan still hasn't had good answers to. Um, with regards to the minimum salary issue, I mean, calls have been on the rise globally for raising the minimum salary, but in Taiwan, I think, based on comments by Tsai and William Lai, Premier William Lai, the Thai administration seems to want to adopt the strategy of convincing industries or businesses to voluntarily raise their minimum wage. Uh, there was a sort of publicity stunt where Tsai went to a, a Mosburger and praised their salaries, for example, and brought her staff there and treated her staff. Uh, it's, it's a question, though, whether, whether companies will do this voluntarily. Um, I, I also don't know if they might just raise costs as a, as a way of recouping what they perceive as losses from raising salaries. Um, sometimes, with regards to changes to the Labor Standards Act, some companies do use this as an excuse to just raise prices, although they are actually not suffering. Um, you know, it, it's a way to drive up increased profit and cut down costs. And of course, we had that when they amended the amendments to the Labor Standards Act. Restaurants are putting up signs saying we've had to rise our prices because staffing costs have gone up. That's right, and that's not always actually the case. But no, of that- course it's not, because it was, <laughs> when they amended the amendments of the amendments... These mm-hmm. same stores kept the same price. That's right. <laughs> Where theoretically they should have probably put the prices down. Uh-huh. And so I imagine if, say, a referendum is successful somehow, then the same cycle will repeat itself. I mean, do you really think they're going to get a referendum on this? It's hard to say. Uh, I think that the referendum is very untested because just the benchmarks are viewed by many as too low. Um, but at the same time, just there has not been a nationwide referendum since the changes were were um, passed, although although efforts are moving slowly in that direction. And so it, it remains to be seen. Um, I also just don't know how the public would vote on the issue.
Yeah. So as um, you know, a California voter myself, um, you know, we 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 basically get hit with referendums, you know, every single election cycle, right? Um, you know, and you know, basically every election cycle, we get ten, you know, somewhere between ten and twenty referendum questions. Um, you know, I think I think in Taiwan, this is, you know, we are entering sort of a new new age in um, direct democracy in Taiwan. I think, um, and you know, whether whether that's a good thing or bad thing, you know, it, it is something that, as Brian said, is very untested, right? You know, what are the um, you know, public uh, controversies that are, you know, that people feel, yes, you know, we should decide this through a direct vote versus, you know, okay, some of these issues, you know, probably it's either too technical or, um, you know, it's too, it doesn't really affect everybody, you know, or the, um, the effects are just too unknown for people to understand. Um, I do want to caution, right? So um, this has not, not really happened in Taiwan before, but um, when you have referendums, you can imagine people campaigning on those, right? So of course, when you have a referendum, you could you can expect ads on TV and on billboards and on the side of buses and in subway stations about you know why some of these labor groups are just you know lazy and greedy and these ads will be, will be paid for by these corporations, um, you know. And I can't you know say that these ads are not you know effective across the board, right? And so, um, in one way, that does. Um, engage the public more in the debate. On the other hand, you know, it is, I, I just don't think, I, I just think we don't really know what the effects of having a lot of these political controversies be decided by a direct up or down simple vote um, is going to be. Right, we'll move on from those issues and move on to another issue. And this issue concerns Taiwan's new national identification card. Well, plans for a new design have run into trouble and the Ministry of the Interior was forced to temporarily shut down a website last week. And the website was designed to allow the public to vote for the design and it was attacked by cyber attacks by suspected anti-Taiwan independence groups. Now, officials say that the use of the title Taiwan in what was the most popular design resulted in scores of cyber attacks and the website was attacked with a message reading stop separatist movements and people who went to the website were then redirected to another website which promoted Beijing's anti-secession law. That happened before the government shut the website down. Now, of course, the leading design is called the Taiwanese National Identity Card Local Residents of the Island. And that's not the only issue, however, because conservative civic groups also have a problem with the new ID card due to the removal of certain information. And the Guardian Taiwan Alliance says it's against the moves to remove gender, the family names of parents on the ID card and also marital status. So there, do you find that offensive, Brian, to remove the gender, <laughs> the family names of your parents and your marital status from ID cards? Or do you think that's OK? Uh, I think that's OK, but because I think that these conservative groups that have got on board, part of their concern is that the family or the institution of the family is under attack in Taiwan with pushes towards marriage equality and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and there's all this fear mongering about that changing the constitution and the definition of the family will lead to the breakdown of the family structure and that the so there's paranoia that this, these changes on these IDs are a step towards that by the government, a secret machination of the Thai administration, if you will. Um, and, you know, with regards to, say, parents, I mean, that just further puts the family at the center of things. Um, it's not surprising, though, I think, that the ID cards would become an issue of contestation. Just you've seen this with currency uh, flag, you know, redesign contests um, and and 
the Taiwanese passport itself. I mean, just ID has become a, a site of contestation about identity in recent years. And Jieting, you've seen the have you seen the ID card designs? Yeah, I I have, and you know I do have to say from a you know aesthetic perspective, I do personally like the winning design. Um, and you know this is sort of a separate issue, but um, yeah, the the government does in Taiwan do a lot of these design contests, right? And um, you know I, I could understand why because the government, whenever they put out something, you know, of their own, the as, the aesthetics always come under attack, right? And so they say, well, okay, let's just open it up, and people can vote, right? And then you know I don't think the results are always that much better. And, you know, I, I think in, in this case, um, of course, you know, as Brian said, you're, you are dealing with national symbols, right? And the names of, you know, how, how, do you, how do you identify yourself as a citizen of this of the state, right? And so I think, um, you know, yeah, people are, you know, I think it's understandable that, that, peop- that some people will get concerned. Um, then again, you know, I don't know how binding this actual design contest is, right? And... You know, there there were a lot of design contests, like the currency one, which is just, you know, it's it's almost sort of an online, you know, online popularity contest, right? That the government really has no um, intent to you know go through with it. So, you know, is it is it just much to do about nothing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, I mean, did you like the design? Um, I did. Yeah, I, I I like the kind of minimalist aesthetic, but that's just my sense of aesthetics. Um, I I think that's right. The Oftentimes, the government, the current claim is that this will be used as a kind of consultatory material for what the final design is. Uh, but oftentimes, it is hypothetical. What is interesting is I think the current wave of uh, contest for designing a new flag or currency or ID came after the Taiwan Passport campaign, in which uh, which was started by a pro-independence designer to put stickers onto the Taiwanese uh, the ROC passport, so it read Republic of Taiwan. A lot of times when these contests are pushed for, they're by pen-green actors from the DPP or the MPP to kind of reinvent Taiwanese identity, to create something that is more pro-Taiwan. And so it's not surprising that it very quickly becomes a contest between identities. Uh, the, the third winning, desi- the third highest-voted design was very ROC nationalist, for example, um, versus the winning de- the design, which was more pro-independence. That was the Sun Yat-sen Nanjing that's right. design, the colourful one. That's right. That looked a lot nicer than the minimalistic <laughs> one, but obviously that's going to offend people. <laughs> anyway, before we go today, we've got a new airline coming to Taiwan, and this, of course, involves former Ever Airways chairman Zhang Guowei, who this week announced that his Starlux Airlines has now been issued an official business registration certificate by the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Now, that means, well... They now have to pass a five-stage civil aeronautics administration evaluation process in order to acquire the air operator certificate. And as Starlux and Jung say they hope to begin operations in 2020 as scheduled. Now, according to Jung, Starlux will initially operate 10 Airbus A321 Neo narrow body aircraft on lease. And they'll initially serve destinations across Southeast and Northeast Asia. So, Brian, does Taiwan really need another airline? It's hard to say. I think what is interesting about the Starlux is that it's formed a split in the Evergreen family after the founder died. And so this is the eldest son of the Chang family that owns the uh, owns Evergreen. And he split from the family and now he wants to create his own airline. Uh, so maybe this is just goes back to a family feud between airlines or airline-owning families. I mean, do you think the islands... I mean, it's China Airlines, Ever Airways, another... Because this is not going to be a budget carrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I mean, it'd be good to have another name that's to the list of airlines that are from Taiwan. I think um, maybe it would help something for Taiwan's international recognition that there's another airline that you could see be like, oh, it's from Taiwan. So, Jetting, you're flying home from San Francisco to Taipei. You you have three airlines soon to choose from. Um, well, actually, in fact, I have more than three airlines to choose from, right? I mean, United flies a very <laughs> um, budget kind of uh, flight. <laughs> um, you know, you have uh, Japan Airlines, you know, ANA. Uh, if you want to fly to Taipei, you can transfer at Incheon if you fly Korean or if you fly Asiana. Um, and, yeah, if you just, you know, do a quick search, you can fly China Eastern, you can fly Air China. Um, you know, so there there are a lot of choices, and I think um, if you're talking about just you know in the scope of international um, travel markets, yeah, I think you know let's if they really want to do this, let's see how they do in the marketplace. My question is though, because it was China Airlines has a place at Taoyuan mm. International Airport. Mm. Ever Airways has its own place at Taoyuan International Airport. I mean, do you think that Starlux will get its own gates at? It's hard to say. They are building a new terminal. Um, so when Terminal 3 is complete, I wonder what it will look like. Uh, perhaps perhaps they do intend for the company to... Well, I'm not, I can't remember when the terminal will be complete, but they could maybe allocate some space there for it. And what do you think Ever Airways is thinking? Do you think they're worried or...? I wonder about that. It's very hard to enter the market with something that's, as I think, resource-intensive as, as airlines. And so I don't know if they actually do view it as a, a serious competition or not. Uh, though, though I'm sure that the family anger runs deep um, with these splits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on you know how Starlux you know, differentiates itself, right? Whether it's by price or by service or by um, you know their you know their destinations, and you know I think airlines. Um, yeah, I think people kind of don't expect much from airlines these days, and so you know, I, I, I for one, you know, I'm pretty, I'm kind of looking forward to what they can do. Um, I don't have extremely high hopes, um, and you know, I, I kind of have a problem with the name. <laughs> I wish they, um, but you know, that's uh, of, of course, you know, I'm not the one with the money or the you know the control, right? And so if they do well, you know, I think that's that's good for the marketplace. Um, you know, if they don't, then yeah, like, you know, they will know when to get out of the business. I mean, Starlux does sound like a budget airline <laughs> name, Brian. You it can't does, argue. It does. it does sound like a budget airline. When, when you airline. try to put Lux in the name of something that makes it seem unluxurious, um, I think that that's when you try to show off you being luxurious, then you oftentimes don't see that way. Um, as for me, I think what I'm just primarily concerned about is that so long as they don't beat passengers like with United, or and so long as the food is good, I'm probably happy with it. <laughs> Anyway, that's where we'll leave the show this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Jie Ting Ye. And have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week's previous episodes on podcast. And if you like this show, you may want to check out Taiwan Talk, which is also available on iTunes and Android podcast apps. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.